The sermon text for this morning is Joshua chapter 24. These are among Joshua's final words to Israel. We know, having studied the book thus far, that Joshua was chosen as the leader of Israel after Moses died, that Joshua was part of that first generation of Israelites whom the Lord brought out of slavery in Egypt. And so Joshua saw the unfaithfulness of the first generation in the wilderness. He saw how that first generation doubted the goodness and the covenant love of of God. And so now Joshua, before he dies, he warns this second generation that, that has now inhabited the promised land. So as we study Joshua 24 this morning, we need to remember it's a covenant renewal ceremony. Uh, Israel is renewing its commitment to the Lord. The nation here is renewing the commitment that they made at Mount Sinai, which we read for our first reading. See, this generation of Israelites is now saying, we will love and serve the Lord alone, uh, just as the covenant at Sinai stipulates. Uh, We do this every Sunday morning in worship. We renew our covenant commitment to Christ. And so this isn't anything unique in the scriptures or even unique to us as as Christians today. You'll notice that this uh, covenant renewal ceremony, though, in Joshua chapter 24, it's in the form of a a typical uh, ancient Near Eastern treaty between a great king and his subjects. Um, It takes the form of the historical treaties of that day. Such covenants involved a great king or the mediator of of a great king. And this is just a summary of an overview of of what the form would take. Uh, It first began by reviewing the many benefits that the great king bestowed upon his subjects, upon his people, and then stating what that great king demanded of them. And then it went on to stipulate what would happen if they obeyed and if they disobeyed. It would stipulate the blessings for obedience and the curses or the penalties for uh, disobedience. And so Joshua, as the covenant mediator here, he begins this covenant renewal ceremony by recounting God's display of covenant love to his people. This is what we see in verses 2 through 13 of Joshua chapter 24. And he begins by first describing God's gracious call. You'll notice that in verses 2 through 5, God's gracious call. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. As we read our Bibles, one of the mistakes that we can make is in thinking that the Old Testament is all about law and the New Testament is all about grace. Um, And even worse, uh, we might make the mistake of thinking that in the Old Testament, believers were saved by keeping the law, and we as uh, New Testament believers are saved by grace. 
of that is not true. Notice here how Joshua describes God's call to Abraham. It was a gracious call. God, we read, called Abraham when he was a pagan, worshiping other gods, as it clearly says here in verse 2. See, it's not as though Abraham was a righteous person and and God saw him and and said, there is a good guy right there. Uh, He deserves to receive my blessing. No, what we read instead is that Abraham was a pagan, living in a, a pagan land, and he worshiped idols. He did not merit the favor of God. He didn't earn it by his works. Instead, we read that God, in his grace, in his unmerited favor towards sinners, God chose Abraham, and he called him out of that place of sin, and he enabled him to worship God alone. God gave Abraham saving faith. You know, we might say more clearly that Abraham received what we refer to as the effectual call of God, the effective call of God. And we say that it's an effectual call from God because it's a call that cannot fail. It is always effective in bringing dead sinners to spiritual life in Christ. Effectual calling is also known as irresistible grace. It's grace that is irresistible in the sense that a God-saving work overcomes whatever resistance a sinner might set up against it so that when the Holy Spirit works to change a person's nature, the Holy Spirit can and will bring God's desired effect to pass. It happens. The effectual call of God cannot fail. I'm going to read from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10, paragraphs 1 and 2, which explain... God's effectual call. This confession is a summary of what we believe at our church. We read there, all those and only those whom God has predestined to life, he is pleased to call effectually in his appointed and accepted time by his word and spirit. He calls them from the state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. In this calling, God enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly so that they understand the things of God. He takes away their hearts of stone and gives them hearts of flesh, renews their wills, and by his almighty power turns them to what is good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. He does this in such a way that they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. The confession then continues and says, This effectual call is from God's free and special grace alone. It's not based on merit. It's not from anything at all that God foresees in man who is entirely passive in it until being made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is enabled to answer the call and embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. This is the effectual call 
that Abraham received. It's the call that all true believers receive from the Lord. And so it's not that Abraham and his descendants who had true faith were saved by works, by obeying the law. They were saved in the same way that all believers are saved through God's effectual, gracious call. Joshua then recounts God's gracious preservation of his people. We see this in verses 6 through 10. I'm going to read verses 6 through 7. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. We see here, loved ones, that God not only gave Abraham and his family a new life, spiritual life, but he also remained with them, cared for them, loved them, and protected them. See, it's not as though God called Abraham and said, hey, Abraham, I chose you, you know, I, I love you, but you and your family have to figure out a way to make it to uh, the promised land, and I'll see you there, I'll be waiting for you. No, what we read instead is we read throughout the Old Testament how God lovingly and graciously preserved his people every step of the way. How he protected them against the Egyptian army after Pharaoh pursued them and how he overtook that Egyptian army through the Red Sea. We read about how God appeared in a pillar of fire by day and a cloud, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, how he provided that guidance and that care for his people. Now he gave them his word through Moses so that they would learn about him and that they would know him. And so as his people, we can trust, loved ones, we can trust that God continues to preserve us, to protect us. And Jesus said something very significant to his disciples before his ascension. They were terrified of him leaving. And he had been crucified, dead, buried, rose on the third day, and then he spent the next 40 days with his disciples, and they were ecstatic about the fact that he was with them again until he had to say again, I am leaving. I'm going away. And they were terrified of him leaving. But he comforted them by saying in Matthew chapter 28, though I go away, he said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That he is present with us by his spirit. And so, loved ones, Jesus assures us that during this in-between time, this time between the new life that we've received through God's effectual call and our next life, the inheritance that we will receive in glory, that in this in-between time, God is with us. And so in this time that is filled with temptations and, and pressures and, and stresses and difficulties, we can find comfort, loved ones, in knowing that we are not alone. We are being protected by the power of God. And because we are his children, we can rest knowing that uh, even when we do encounter difficulties, when we, even when we do experience great pain in life, we can trust that God is sovereignly overruling those things for our good and for his glory. We can trust in our Heavenly Father that 
no difficulty will come upon us that God does not permit for our good and for his glory. We rest in knowing what we read in Romans 8.28 to be true, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. After recounting God's gracious call and his gracious preservation of his people, Joshua lastly recounts God's gracious provision. We see this in verses 11 through 13. That during Israel's pilgrimage from Egypt to the promised land, God provided all that they needed. He provided manna and quail in the wilderness for them to eat. He provided water miraculously at times for them to drink. He gave them daily provision in the wilderness. And that now as they were in the promised land, his provision continued. Read in verse 13, Joshua said on behalf of the Lord, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. See, Joshua was pointing out that Israel had to see that the provisions that they experienced, that they enjoyed, were not by merit, but they were because of God's mercy. As Christians, we believe that God has created the universe with properties and laws that we can study and, and that we can benefit from. In fact, it's these very regularities that make scientific study possible. We, we know that God created an ordered universe, but just because God put these laws in place, it doesn't mean that God is now a sitting back, no longer involved in his creation. No, the Bible clearly reveals God's ongoing involvement in our lives on a daily basis. He is involved in the details of our lives in caring for us and continually providing all that we need. The Heidelberg Catechism is a, a summary of the Christian faith. It was written in the 1500s. It helpfully explains uh, how God's provision comes to us in our lives and, and how we can respond to his gracious provision. It explains in question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, not by chance, but from his fatherly hand, his daily care for us as his children, his daily provision of bread and of sustenance. And then the next question follows up on this and impresses how we must live as, as Christians, knowing that God is our heavenly father and he loves us in Jesus Christ and therefore he provides our needs. How does this knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? The answer, we can be patient when things go against us. Thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move 
nor be moved. Joshua, now having recounted God's gracious actions toward his people, Joshua now calls Israel to renew their commitment to the Lord. As we see God's demand for covenant commitment in the second half of the chapter, verses 14 through 33. And notice first that Joshua calls Israel to a responsive commitment. See this in verse 14 at the very beginning. The verse begins this way, now therefore. That word therefore signals that Joshua's call to uh, covenant commitment is based on God's gracious acts toward his people. Joshua is saying, therefore, or based upon what God has done for you, this is how you must now respond. You must respond in covenant commitment. Now, this is actually a very familiar pattern throughout the Bible. We know that, for instance, the Ten Commandments begin in this way. They begin with a preamble, an introduction in which God's, God uh, first reminds Israel of his gracious redemption of them. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the uh, land of slavery. Now that introduction to the Ten Commandments, to the law, teaches us that because God is Lord and is our God and Redeemer, the one who shows us grace, we must keep all of his commandments. And this same pattern is also found in the New Testament. Now, the Apostle Paul, for example, uh, usually begins his letters with uh, what we uh, sometimes call indicatives, with um, what is true of us as believers in Christ, with explanations about the new life that we have in Christ, about the grace that we have received in Jesus Christ. These are all indicatives of what it means for us to be saved by grace. And then Paul transitions from the indicative to the imperative, how we must now live as those who have been given new life in Christ. One very clear example is found in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 17, which is about middle way through Paul's thoughts. But I think that we'll be able to understand what he's getting at. Notice the indicative. What he's pointing at is, is our reality of being in Christ and the grace that we have received. He says that you, uh, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What wonderful indicatives. And Paul here, after having explained so wonderfully God's grace to us in Christ in chapter 3, he then transitions to what our response ought to be. He transitions to the imperative. Chapter 4, he begins, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. See, all of this indicates, loved ones, that we can live in a new way because we have been given new life. It's the indicative that leads us to live in the imperative that we read in the scriptures. We have been regenerated by the Spirit. We have received the mind of Christ. And so we must now, as scripture calls us, we must now strive after new obedience in response to all that God has done for us in Christ. Notice next that Joshua calls Israel to an exclusive commitment. First, a responsive commitment. Next, it's an exclusive commitment. We read verses 14 through 15. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Notice that Joshua calls Israel here to a decision. The decision is to either serve the one true God, the one true God who has shown himself gracious and merciful to his people over centuries, or to serve the pagan false gods of their ancestors or of the Canaanites. What Joshua is pointing out here, if we read it very carefully, is he's pointing out that Israel will worship someone or something. See, Joshua is, is wisely pointing out that everyone is religious. Everyone serves someone or something. You know, sometimes in, in our day and age, we'll hear atheists talk about how they are not religious. But in reality, they are loved ones. Everyone is bowing down to something. For atheists, it might be that they worship themselves or they worship human innovation or, or they worship some sin itself. And so the decision that is before us always is, will we worship the one true God, or will we worship something that is created, something that is less than God? You know, we need to make many important decisions in life, don't we? Decisions about school, about work, about family. But loved ones, this decision of whether or not we will serve the one true God is the most important decision that we will ever make. It's this decision, actually, that shapes how we will make all of the other decisions in our lives. We read here in Joshua 24, his resolve. But as for me and my house, he says, we will serve the Lord. He is fully convinced. Notice that Joshua is, is not taking a poll to see what he should do. He's not following the crowd. He's not looking for, well, what's the majority uh, doing? Instead, what he's doing is he's standing on what he knows is true of God. 
One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is John chapter 6, verse 66 through 69. And it's a passage in which uh, Jesus has just finished teaching the crowds that no one comes to him under their own willpower. Actually talking to the crowds about God's effectual call. He says, no one is capable of coming to me uh, on his own unless the Father has enabled him. Jesus says this. And then we read in verse 66, after he said these very hard words, very difficult teachings, sayings, says, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. So Jesus said to the 12 disciples, do you want to leave me too? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples resolve that there is truth in no other, there is life in no other, but in Christ alone, in the one who is God. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And why did Jesus identify himself as the life? Why that specific way? He had identified himself that way because we need life, because at Adam we are dead. The whole Bible, all of humanity, testifies to our deadly depravity and sin. We read in scripture that the natural man, man outside of Christ, doesn't seek after God, that he seeks after his own good and, and pleasure. He seeks the things of this world. He is dead to the things of God. He is dead to the things of the spirit. He is as spiritually lifeless as a corpse is physically lifeless. But we read in scripture that Christ, as our mediator, is the one who gives life because in him we are born again. That through his finished work of redemption and the Spirit's application of his work, we are born to newness of life. We are regenerated. We are like the prodigal son who, if you recall in the parable, when he returned home, do you remember what he uh, said to his father? How he was just wanting to, to just be a servant in the house of his father, didn't want to even be accepted again as a son, didn't expect that kind of grace from his father. And the father's response was, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Without Jesus, loved ones, there is no life. Without Jesus, we perish in eternal death. And this is what is taught in John chapter 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If Jesus is the one who leads us to God, he is the one who grants us newness of life. And so if you are placing your trust in someone or, or something else that claims to be the way, that claims to be the truth, that claims to give you life, you will perish. Because the Bible clearly says that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by whom we must be saved. Lastly, we see in our text that Joshua calls Israel to a cautious commitment. Verses 16 and following. 
after the people agree to follow the Lord in uh, renewing the covenant, we read in verse 19 that Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. And read those words and you think, you know, why did Joshua respond so negatively to Israel's enthusiasm in seeking obedience to the Lord? Why did he respond so, you might say, cynically to their enthusiasm? Loved ones, he responded in this way because he wanted them to think deeply about what they were vowing. He wanted them to be cautious in their commitment. This is like what Jesus said to his disciples, that they needed to count the cost of discipleship. That following after Christ is not an easy road. It's a fight. It's a battle. It's a lifelong race. And so we need to count the cost. Joshua wanted them to be cautious in their commitment, to understand what they were vowing to. We also know that Joshua anticipated Israel's failure. Remember, he had seen the unfaithfulness of the first generation. Uh, He had seen how quickly some of the Israelites had already failed in the promised land. Remember Achan's sin in disobeying the word of the Lord. And so in verse 19, Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord fully, completely, as he demands in his law. You know, I used to play water polo, and I was thinking about Joshua here, remembering the way that my water polo coach used to talk to us. It was after the third quarter into the fourth quarter, and we were barely um, getting by. He would have one of those raw, raw talks with us. He'd call a timeout, and he'd take us aside, and he'd say, you can do this. You know, that team, they're nothing. You can do this. You guys have it in you to do this. Sometimes we can read this passage in Joshua and think about him as a coach, trying to stir up obedience in Israel and to say, you can do this. It's all up to you. Loved ones, he's not a coach. Joshua here is a pastor, and he knows that they can't do it. And this is why God gave Israel a sacrificial system, so that they would not look to themselves for righteousness, and and they would not look to themselves for merit, but that they see, so they would constantly look to the blood of another to cleanse them from their sins. So that they would constantly be drawn out of themselves and to look up to God for mercy and forgiveness. See, Israel's failure was no surprise to God. We know that his judgment came upon Israel through their exile into Assyria and into Babylon. But the good news of the gospel good news of the gospel doesn't end with Israel's judgment and exile. Because God, knowing that we are unable to keep the law perfectly, he sent his son to fulfill the law. And Jesus did this by, in the fullness of time, taking on a human nature and bearing the curse or the penalty of our sin. This is sometimes referred to as his passive obedience. You know, As we said, the penalty for sin is death, eternal death. And Jesus bore this penalty through his passive obedience, through his whole work of removing the curse of Adam's sin and 
our sin and, and taking those curses and those penalties upon himself on the cross. And he also did this through his active obedience. By all that he did to positively and, and actively fulfill the law that the Father requires of his people. What the Westminster Confession refers to as Jesus as, as perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience, that is what Jesus rendered to the Father. See, the point is that we now obey, loved ones, being in Christ. We now obey not for merit, because there is no merit in us outside of Christ. And we don't obey because we fear God's crushing judgment and, and condemnation, as Israel did there at Mount Sinai. But we obey out of joy, out of renewed hearts and minds. Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. We can't add to his finished work. Christ has borne our punishment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in him. And so our response is one of joyful praise and worship and, and willing obedience because we have obtained pardon and cleansing through Christ our Lord. All praise and all glory be to him. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for Christ who was condemned in our place. We thank you for his obedience to your covenant requirements. We thank you that the work he accomplished has been credited to us and that those covenant penalties that we deserved for our sin were credited to him. Lord, help us to remember that we are in union with our Savior. Help us, we pray, to live as those who are redeemed and freed from the bonds of sin. Help us to live in unity as brothers and sisters, showing humility and, and kindness toward one another, even as we have been shown such kindness uh, by our Lord. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.